everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Uh, I think we're doing something a little different today. This one isn't going to be filmed, but we're just doing here in our studio with uh, Marlon Summers, who did some writing for our blog that we're hoping to dive into a little. And one of our board advisors, uh, Kyle Stalsfus, is with us as well. So Marlon, you had done an article on Bible translation. Um, what are the values of different um, translations of, of scripture, things like that. Um, and then Kyle, you had had a number of questions, comments, maybe some things we could kick around and and dive a little deeper than what that article did. And and we'll link the article in the description. It'd probably be good to, to read that if, if you haven't yet to get a little more context. So anyway, let's just dive right in. Kyle, I think uh, you might have a few questions here for Marlon. Yeah, I mean, if I can throw a comment in there first, it is split into two essays on the blog. Uh, so we can link both of them. Mm-hmm. The one is called Why New Bible Translations Matter, an Example. It kind of gets into the weeds just a little bit. And then the other one is much bigger picture. It's called Choosing Translations for Bible Study. I think, Marla, maybe we'll just start off with this um, work that you did on why Bible translations matter, an example. You, you say you, you get into the weeds with it a little bit. I think some of what I'm seeing in the article is you, you just narrow in on one very specific passage here in Titus 2, and it's just Titus 2, verse 13, that you, uh, you, 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 you just try to describe some of, the, some of the thinking and clarification that's going on as part of this process. But some of what you're pointing out in the article is it just takes a lot of really detailed scholarship to produce a good translation. Use the example of Sharp's role to point out how in Titus 2.13, the patterns of one language may not fit all of the patterns of a different language. And this is part of what makes translation necessary. I I wonder, could you just describe this Sharp's role a little bit? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It is focusing on a very specific issue, this um, interesting um, Sharp's role coming from Granville Sharp as an Englishman who liked to write about a lot of things, including abolition and so on. And I also like it because he was not a professional academic scholar of New Testament language. He was just, he had broad interests and he dug in deep enough to make this kind of contribution. Yeah, so let's start with an English example completely separate from scripture. If I were to introduce somebody as the mayor and Sorry, let me back up there a little bit. Um, if I were to tell you that I'm going to meet the mayor and fire chief of my local town, am I going to meet one person or two people? And our English language doesn't specify that. It could be one person who is both the mayor and the fire chief. Hopefully it's a small town. <laughs> or it could be two different people that I'm getting together to meet. Uh-huh. So there's some ambiguity there. Right, there's some ambiguity there. Um, And we have ways of disambiguating it. Um, The idea is, in Koine Greek, if you take a phrase that has very roughly that structure, there's a couple key differences about between the languages and so on. I will not get into those weeds here. For one thing, I'd want to make sure I was writing and not speaking off the top of my head, because you've got to keep the details straight. But take a roughly equivalent phrase in Greek. The ambiguity is dolon. As long as the right conditions are met, in that case, both the mayor and the fire chief refer to people, which is a key 
thing there. You can't extend the grammar outside of referring to people. If it was a plural, you could not draw the same conclusion um, that they're one and the same, and a couple other grammatical issues. Just to draw that back to our biblical passage then, um, I'll read Titus 2.13 from uh, the American Standard Version. This was a revision of the King James done about 1900, 1901. And it says, We're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There again, our English in that has a little bit of ambiguity. Is, is it referring to, you know, God the Father, the great God, and our Savior separately? Or is it referring to Jesus Christ as being our Savior and great God? One person with two attributes given to them. And then jump forward to, and I'm doing this to kind of capture the time frame when it changed in Bible translation. So Revised Standard Version, New Testament was released in 1946, so, you know, several decades later. It says, Awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the ambiguity is going. Okay, those are two random translations, but there's a complete shift in that time period. You look at a translation after the RSV, and they all agree with the RSV. The ones before pretty much read like the ASV. And again, it's because of the work of Granville Sharp. Now, he actually did his scholarship before the American Standard Version was published um, in the late 1800s, but it took... In the late 1800s, or was it earlier than that? Um, yeah, he did it almost 100 years before, but it took some time for it to be accepted by other people. Which is the tendency of scholarship. You know, there can be something of a watershed moment in the scholarship of translation that, that helps you to understand how to approach a certain passage. But you only really realize that in retrospect many times where you look back and say it's commonly accepted now. Therefore, you can kind of trace it back to say, what's the origin of this? And here it's it's uh, it's Granville Sharp. And he gives us, you call it the uh, Sharp's rule, which is just a way of looking at the structures of Greek language, Koine Greek, and saying this is the most legitimate and authentic way of translating that meaning into the English idiom, which which doesn't convey the same freight unless you work with the language a little bit differently. Um, well, let's keep let's keep going with this. Uh, so we, we have Sharp's rule. Why does that mean we should have from time to time New English translations, or does what does that tell us about translation and fresh translation? I mean, the simple lesson I wanted to draw there is just you keep you keep working, and sometimes you find things through working or scholarship that really should go to the broader public and not just stay stuck in a commentary. You shouldn't have to have a commentary to read Titus 2.13 and see a phrase like, oh, wait, he just directly said, Jesus Christ is God. Um, because that's not actually all that common in the New Testament. There's lots of ways in which the New Testament teaches us the deity of Christ and divinity. Um, but that straight reference, you know, our God, Jesus Christ, uh -huh. is pretty uncommon. And uh -huh. the ordinary Christian reading their English Bible deserves to see that phrase. It's a sharp, even though he's doing this detailed critical work behind the scenes, it, it projects it out into the public eye. And because of that, you're saying the, uh, the people who are just picking up their RSV get to see that indeed it is our great God and Savior which is referring to Jesus Christ and, and not just that he's somehow 
attach it. The ambiguity is not there anymore. Okay. There's another direction we can go with this. And then this is what gets interesting too for me. It was important, you say, or I hear you saying this in the article, it's important for Sharp to have produced a translation which affirms and clarifies the deity of Christ during his time. Uh, maybe you just want to enlarge on that. Am, am I am I right? It, why was that important? Yeah, the historical backdrop and his motivations there are fascinating. So he's somebody that got into the issues of the day. You know, one example of that was he's an abolitionist. Um, yep. But another issue here was this was a time in kind of theological liberalism where there was this big movement of the Unitarians. So what these people said was obviously Unitarian, contrast that was Trinitarian. So they're saying there's one God, Jesus was a good man, uh, he wasn't, you know, part of the Trinity. Um, God is one, Jesus is somebody else. And at that point in history, they were arguing this is what the New Testament teaches. And they're defending Unitarianism through their New Testament exegesis, which, Kyle, you have more background in current theology, but my impression is anybody that wants to argue for Unitarianism now is going to have to admit that the New Testament doesn't agree with them. They're just, they're putting their own opinions ahead of, of the apostles or whatever. Um, but in the 1700s, they were actually trying to argue that the New Testament itself teaches Unitarian doctrine. Yeah, and part of that just is in their their, their kind of hyper rationalism that's coming out of the Enlightenment here. They're they're really looking for something very explicit, and there's not a lot of passages like you said that explicitly teach the divinity of Christ in kind of a classical sense. And uh, so this would become a really contested passage. And to look back into the language of Koine Greek and say, actually, you're going to have to do some violence to the language here to get it to say what you want it to would have been pretty significant. Um, but yeah, you're right to, to, to deny that certain passages in the New Testament will affirm explicitly the divinity of Christ. You're going to have to abuse the language a little bit. And uh, we owe some of that to, to Sharp. We can keep going here where we, we start to do a little bit harder work and touch on uh, more hot button issues here is to broaden this question a little bit. I'm wondering, since we're, we're talking about Sharp, his cultural location, we're saying he has textual reasons to make this assessment of Titus. And he also has some pressure from his his time, like the era that he's living in, to make this affirmation. It's not just scholarship exactly just motivated for the love of it. He has good reasons culturally to do this as well. I'm just wondering if you talk to us a little bit here about any other reasons that we have to make fresh translation. Yeah, several. One would be just to extend the same kind of reasoning you're giving for Granville Sharp. The deity of Christ was a doctrine that was under attack. People were trying to say the scriptures don't actually teach the deity of Christ. And so he really dug in on that point, um, did a lot of intense work. And interestingly, he did find some passages that he said, yeah, we should revise the existing translations so they more, cl more clearly show the deity of Christ. And not all of those have stood the test of time. So he made his mistakes too. Um, but the Granville Sharp rule, um, from what I can tell, has very much stood the test of time of very thorough examination from other scholars and so on. I mean, it'd be kind of obvious hot-button cultural issue now is around sexuality and how scriptures think about sexuality, and that that does force us to go back to some really close 
you know, scholarly examination of texts that were kind of taken for granted for a long time. And now you do have people pushing on the interpretation of passages uh, to defend unorthodox views of sexuality. Uh, so I think that's entirely legitimate to go back and really look at those closely. Um, the same way with cultural pressures around the role of women in church or church leadership and so on. Again, that pushes you back to exegesis. And the presumption shouldn't be there that, oh, you do good exegesis, you're going to end up exactly where the church was in 1900. But the presumption should be we do have to look very closely because there are fresh challenges to historic understandings. Maybe they'll alter a little bit, but I think a lot of broad contours are going to stay the same as historical understanding. At least that's my guess. It's not like I've done that detailed <laughs> exegetical work. I get a picture of something kind of reciprocating happening here, where you're, you're going to the text, you're interpreting it, and there's cultural issues that are motivating certain passages or your approach to certain passages, and they become very important, much as they did for Sharp. Suddenly, Titus is very important when you're, you're facing down Unitarians, and that wasn't an issue before, so it wasn't, it wasn't really needed for some of the ambiguities of Titus 2 to be worked on. And just recognizing, again, that, that scholarship tends to draw attention to certain issues because they're relevant. If they're not being talked about, sometimes it just means that they're not unimportant. It's just that they haven't been highlighted yet. <laughs> can, can you say just a little bit more, though, about maybe just help us to think a little bit more about legitimate and maybe illegitimate reasons for the glosses of translation to, to be in place? Like, what are some boundaries when we think about translation as they relate in that reciprocating way to the culture that they're part of, that's motivating our approach to it? Sometimes you get the impression that a biblical scholar, or especially an amateur biblical scholar, is more out to prove a point rather than to understand. <laughs> like, it is important that translation is rooted in, we want to understand what's going on, which is why a translator has to do all kinds of work that may strike a lot of people as boring because, you know, you may have to change an article, take out the word the or add the word the or whatever. They may seem very insignificant to most people. But that kind of detailed work, even when it's not tied to any hot button issues, is really important. And I think a translator, they have to have enough of, they have to have a love for language I think you have to enjoy language and language differences um, to be able to be motivated to do all of that work. Uh, one final comment here. It's just that this conversation does make me think of some of the limits, I think, that have been realized in what's been at least historically called higher criticism. Okay, including I'm including in that form criticism where you look carefully at certain texts and you try to look at the structure of them to, to identify where the where the really crucial issues or places of the text are. There's a historical criticism where you're looking at the historical context of, say, uh, second century Palestine or uh, second century Judaism, whatever, to try to figure out a little bit more clearly what an author is saying to kind of get into his mind or into the mind of his audience. And then there's source criticism where you're in some ways reaching behind the text to look at the textual communities that um, produced a certain text. And you're looking for layers 
of editing and redaction and you know trying to get back in there with the, the hope, at least at the height of higher criticism, the hope is to kind of get in behind, say, the, the Gospel of John got a lot of attention here, get in behind the text of the Gospel of John and kind of tease out the various texts and sources or in the, uh, the Pentateuch, the classic JDEP. There's been a still, and it depends where you're at in these discussions, there's still interest here, but there's also, I think, a growing recognition of some of the limitations of higher criticism. Um, and just like an acknowledgement, like, well, here we have this text, and actually we're kind of limited in how, how well we can get back into history and place ourselves back there and get into the minds of an author or something. I guess my question here is this, like we're in some ways we're recognizing the limits. It, it depends where, say, you'd go to seminary, higher criticism is still very much in vogue. But do you think it's possible to, as we go about the work of translating, to incorporate or include some of the gains of critical work? Yes. So I can't expound just a whole lot because I didn't go to seminary. Mm-hmm. I've read enough of these kinds of books and seen it referenced to, you know, get some general contours of what goes on there. But I guess my basic thesis would be anytime people are paying close attention to the text, and as you're doing that kind of stuff, you are no doubt paying close attention to the text, you're going to gain something. Mm -hmm. Now, you may also lose something because of the presuppositions that, you know, we say, well, we have to read Matthew in light of what we think the community was struggling with at the time, and we think... Matthew just, you know, picked the texts and modified them because that's what his hearers needed. Okay, that perspective, you'll probably gain something by it, but you're going to lose something too. What you're going to lose is that whatever else he was, Matthew was somebody who cared very much about confronting his community with what Jesus said and other communities and so on. But I have no doubt there's going to be insights that come through that scholarship. Uh, especially for people who have the equilibrium to engage some of that scholarship while at the same time not buying whole hog into those presuppositions. It's almost, it feels like this is some of the foundational undercurrent of translation as well. It's, it's pursuing clarity. If we can find more ways to make things clear, provide more nuanced context, help deepen our understanding, Basically, what you're saying, that's a good thing, but we have to be careful because there's trade-offs oftentimes. Is that is that a way of, I, I was just, that, it seems to be sticking in my mind, like how can we gain more clarity, um, both in the translation itself or what you're talking about, Kyle, with higher criticism and, and so forth? So one of the trade-offs with translation and working to make it clear is sometimes a translator makes it makes the English text clearly say what is in fact not so clear in the Greek. <laughs> yeah, um, good point. <laughs> and then you can get pet theories from a translator that have been interjected or whatever. Some of that is unavoidable. Some of that can be reduced by using a good committee for translation rather than making a single person effort by some carefulness in translation methodology and so on. But some of it is just unavoidable question on that actually i don't want to get into the weeds but what is your opinion of of a single person quote unquote or whatever translations so nt Wright did a new testament translation jb phillips are those viable or are you saying there needs to be a little more there needs to be more rigor here or, or am i getting too too in the weeds here for this conversation no this is interesting now that's a really good one so obviously there's sometimes in history when a single person translation was what was available 
we didn't always have the embarrassment of riches. I mean, Kendall had to start out by making basically the first English translation to be translated directly from the original languages. And then, of course, lots of people followed on with that work. Similarly, with a language that doesn't have many Bible translations, somebody's got to do it. There may not be many qualified people. Uh, Fortunately now, even in basically pioneer frontier Bible translation, there is a pretty good network of consultants and so on. So even there, it's not strictly a one-person effort. But yeah, so something like N.T. Wright's translation. I have not read it. I think I would very much enjoy it. But my overall thought would be, use it a little bit more as a commentary. So do not buy pew Bibles of a one-person translation and (laughs) do congregational reading from them in church. Mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but yet it could be very helpful. Yeah. Um, but it is going to reflect N.T. Wright's interpretations of particular passages. Which could be enriching. You know, he uh, N.T. Wright very clearly brings his own historical methodologies to bear on how he interprets texts, and he's going to take that all the way into the level of how he teases out certain possible glosses on Greek. Many times he might be right. Sometimes he might be wrong <laughs> in his emphasis. Uh, in the same way that people kind of enjoy how N.T. Wright approaches the text uh, historically. But, but, you know, sometimes there's questions about his emphasis. And there's definitely questions I know about the dominance of the historical critical methodologies. Even as much attention as they get, it, it makes the biblical theologians grouse just a little bit. They're doing the hard work of actually just getting into the text as it's received and working with that. And then a historical theologian can come away, come along, and just sort of sweep away their gains with <laughs> a little bit of historical flight of hand. It's like, well, this is what it would have meant to the reception community. And somehow that gets the day rather than the full weight of what the canon might say about something. When that's just with the, so N.T. Wright's translation, I, I've been devouring some of his work lately. I actually hadn't read him until recently here. But I got I got his translation, and I must say I I really like it. With the little note beside it that yes, this is just a single man who made this, so I'm not using it for say deep Bible study, and it's not for that. Pretty clearly the way it's laid out, and and and, and yeah. Um, but for just sitting down and just reading through, you know, a book of the New Testament, I found it just wonderful because it reads really easy. It it brings a different flavor, I guess you can say, to ways of different types of wording. He's British instead of American, so you're getting some interesting differences there. I found it really neat, but the point with that whole rabbit trail, I guess, is just one more tool in the toolbox that I found that helps me think about scripture in a refreshing perspective. And But I need to be careful if that was the only thing I was using. I don't think it'd be very adequate, which I'm sure he would probably agree. But anyway, I, yeah, I thought I'd ask you since we're here. So No, that is spot on. Yeah, and this is this does make me think about or reflect on the the significance of this work of translation. I mean, if we're we're here, we're we're working with a sacred text. We call it scripture. It's the Bible. It's the Word, right, or the Word of God. And to handle it lightly would be nothing short of a sacrilege, right? I'm also thinking of the the real influence that some of these Bibles, say like the Schofield edition have had in propagating certain views of of how theology and how scripture all kind of work together. It didn't have to go really far with like Schofield and dispensationalism. He just had to produce an edition of the Bible. And you could either see that as a faithful rendering or as propaganda, depending where you come down. But that was one of the most significant ways in which dispensationalism 
dispensationalism spread was through an edition of the Bible. For this matters. Right. Although, to be fair, Schofield did not produce a translation, did he? He just worked a systematic set of notes into an existing translation. I, I think you're right. It's It was a lot. It's kind of like a study Bible. And so there's something of the heritage of those. I'm not clear on whether there was any glosses to the text or not. I don't think there was, but there could have been. I'm not sure even sure which translation he was working with, honestly. Just to put a note on that, editions like study Bibles matter for the reasons you articulated and lots of other study Bibles. That was a complaint that goes back hundreds of years about how certain Bibles are released with all kinds of notes um, to slant it a certain way. And again... The idea of a study Bible in itself is not a problem, necessarily. But I think it's very unhealthy to use a study Bible or any Bible with extensive notes for your primary reading. Like, I'd really prefer to have my commentary in a separate volume rather than with the text. And so it's really important with a study Bible to think about it as a commentary. And I would argue, put your study Bibles on the shelf, pull them out when you want, want a commentary, but get yourself an edition without those notes for primary reading, for carrying to church, for all of that. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. Well, one last question, and, and we're already kind of touching, I'll just segue over. You mentioned our, our problem today is it's the problem of, well, how did you say the problem of wealth, of surplus? Um, it's It's the problem of having so many translations available. Okay, and we're in a kind of a rare time of history when, if anything, we're overwhelmed because we have so much access to Scripture, not because we have so little. Uh, Could you just give us a little bit of commentary here on choosing translations and how we can go about using them? So, yes, it is a wealth of riches and it can be overwhelming. At the same time, I'm not one of those people that argues we have too many English translations and we should just not worry about producing any more for the next hundred years, because there still are some unresolved issues or difficulties. I'm not sure if any of our current translations are really worthy of being used for the next hundred years, and if they are, I don't know which ones they are. So there's going to be some more of that, and I don't think we should view that as entirely a bad thing. Part of it is with the shift in English language, and translation world has been all in a tizzy the last number of decades about how do we do well with translating language related to gender um, when the English language is really shifting? And I'm not sure that anybody has figured out exactly what the best way to do that is yet. And there's other issues related to language and scholarship and so on. So I do refuse to give much commentary on choosing what I would call a primary Bible translation. So I'm not going to say much about, okay, what's the best choice for memorizing What's the best choice when you do corporate reading in church? But I think when it comes to selecting a library, I think you should have a few kind of go-to study translations um, in addition to your primary Bible. What I suggested in that article was to think about several kinds of diversity of translations. You want some diversity of translation for that fresh perspective, maybe as a correction to some weaknesses that come with a particular translation. Again, it's not because I think, oh, translations are bad. No, I think we have lots of translations that are very good. But since we have this wealth and have this abundance, I think it is responsible um, to make use of it. And so I suggested 
kind of two divisions, where you should have kind of one on each side of the division, at least. So the one is basically the King James tradition. So we have a whole stream of Bibles that derive from the King James, and before that, back to William Tyndall, um, through revisions. Um, earlier in this session, we mentioned the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version. Both were revisions of the King James. Uh, neither one is widely used anymore. Um, but the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible both trace back to those translations. Uh, they're in that stream. Um, the New King James was also, like, obviously, um, based off of the King James. So I suggest there's something helpful about having both a translation that derives from the King James and that long tradition, as well as a translation that was more of a fresh effort. And there's quite a number of those out there. Um, so that's kind of like one of the axes on my grid. And then I have a second axis on the grid, which I think is fairly important and actually ties right back into some of your questions about these different forms of historical criticism and form criticism and reactions to them and so on, is most of the translations that I see Anabaptist people using definitely come out of the evangelical camp. I mean, okay, if you're using the King James, that doesn't come out of the evangelical camp because that was Anglicans 400 years ago. But the New American what's, Standard, the English what's Standard... What's evangelical <laughs> 400 years ago? <laughs> Hopefully evangelical at that point just meant, you know, of the gospel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, you know, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the NIV, these are done by evangelicals. And I think I have a high regard for what some evangelical scholars have done. I think a lot of evangelical scholars have done very well at engaging with that higher criticism from an orthodox perspective. And I think that brings something very powerful to using these Bible translations produced by them. They're going to care a lot about things like the deity of Christ, partly for theological reasons, because they're evangelical. Um, on the other hand, there is this danger of being too attuned to cultural agendas. And so that can, that can come through in evangelical translations. Uh, most often they're trying to show that they're not liberal, so they can't translate a passage a certain way, or they might be accused of being liberal, which has made for interesting scenarios over the last decades. But also as we think about that as Anabaptists, sometimes that evangelical agenda can come through translations in ways that kind of cut against our beliefs just as much as they cut against the beliefs of kind of liberal Christianity. And so I would suggest that in addition to having an evangelical Bible, it would also be very wise to have one coming from another stream of scholarship, um, whether it is more mainstream, liberal, if you will, Protestants, whether it's produced by Catholic scholars, Greek Orthodox scholars, or whatever. So this kind of gives you a grid with four corners in it. And I kind of lay that out. I think I actually included a little chart in the essay on the blog. Yeah, that's not the only way to get diversity. I found that is a helpful way to think about diversity in translation. Uh, one of my go-tos, actually, if I want to get a fresh perspective, is the New American Bible, which was, you know, produced by Catholic scholars. Do I swallow everything in it? No, but I find it interesting. And I picked it up in a thrift store for a dollar or two, so that helps. <laughs> so you're suggesting something kind of 
something omnivorous here, I think, you know, where we, you don't just, you don't just stick in one pasture and say, well, I've got everything I need here. It's like, you might as well, you might as well graze over here a little bit and over there, but compare them and, and invest thoughtfully in not just putting all of your eggs in the one basket. I'm using all these farm metaphors all of a sudden, not just <laughs> putting all of your eggs in one basket, but, uh, but, but milking into different pails. Sorry. Uh, but you're, you're actually wanting to have a library in a lot of ways and, and, and use the wealth that way. Because here we have it, you may as well use it and have a primary reader as long as some secondary ones you can go. And if you're getting detailed or deep into a passage, to read it in all four or maybe even five translations really isn't that bad of an idea. Sometimes it's enlightening. Yeah, and just a comment on tools, and I'd love feedback from either of you. So obviously we're moving to a digital age, Bible study software, or just simply the internet that you can access free through your browser for various sites, makes it very easy to compare translations. I mean, you can go to Bible Gateway, for example, and look at one verse and compare about 10 or 15 different translations, which I do sometimes. But I do actually want to make a plug for your primary four here, getting them on paper. And sometimes just reading from that passage, not just, oh, I'll look up this verse and compare it, but actually sit down and read on paper a chapter or a couple chapters from one of these comparison texts. But I'd love to have comments. I guess you guys are digital to varying degrees. Uh, I'm actually pretty pretty, um, intentional about not doing digital because there's enough of my life that is. And there's something about about just sitting down with, with it and... You're, you're not reading off a screen, which is good for your eyes. Um, but also that, like you were saying with Bible Gateway, you know, where maybe you're comparing a bunch of translations and that is very powerful and very helpful in some some ways. But I, I'm really big on context and it's so hard when you're just pulling out one verse and comparing a bunch of translations. There's a place for that, but I would much rather take out the different options, read through a number of different passages. And you can do that digitally as well, I, I'm sure. But there's some, something about actually doing it with an actual reader where you can just sit down and get engrossed in it if you'd like or dabble around. I, I don't know. It feels um, for me personally, and I'm sure there are people that do it digitally, but that's that's my go to. Um, maybe there's some psychological reason. I'm not sure. <laughs> Kyle, how do, how do you do it? I'm a pretty spatial guy. And I just mean by that, like when I'm reading any book, uh, part of one of the memory cues I rely on is just where things are located in the book. Was this halfway through? Was it two thirds of the way down the page? That's it's a memory aid for me. And to look at everything on a flat panel just deprives me of that aid. Uh, So I've realized it's taken time, but I like to have paper. I like to read books that are actually bound. I'll be honest here, I do require students in uh, the classes here that I teach in in reading and teaching the Bible when we're doing exegetical work, I require them to read passages in multiple translations. And part of that is just to get get them immersed in this world of translation and to recognize, you know, there's different glosses are in the text and sometimes it's very different depending on the family that the text has come from. So I require it of them. I don't do a lot of comparative reading myself. I, and I'll just, I'll just uh, play my hand here. What I really enjoy is intertextuality or like looking, you know, how does this, where, there's, there's a reference or an echo here to Isaiah or something like that. But that's just my, <laughs> that's my preoccupation right now. If I were doing a lot of parallel reading, I'd be I'd be looking for Bibles, like the actual physical hard copy. And it'd be really nice to be able to print them out 
in a way that I can scratch freely in the margins and draw arrows and things. That's that's how I tend to work. It's very messy. That's the best way, in my opinion. <laughs> the digital age has also brought us printers, which are very helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. Uh, um, I mean, and that is a good point, too. It is possible to be distracted by shuttling back and forth between translations too much. Um, I think there is wisdom to picking a good primary translation and really having it be primary. It depends on the kind of study you're doing and so on as to exactly how much shuttling back and forth you do. Uh, The other thing you really want to avoid, I think hopefully most of us do fairly well with this, but it can be a danger, is thinking, you know, I don't know what the Bible says unless I can go read every translation. And that is... That's very much the opposite error. There's something about the Bible is to be received. And, you know, back to the translators of the King James, a few of them at least um, worked on a preface um, when the King James Bible was released in 1611, which you should absolutely read. It is chock full of wisdom. It refutes King James onlyism. It explains why we shouldn't still be reading the King James because it explains why it's important to keep producing new translations of the Bible. (laughs) And just a lot of other good advice. But the piece I'm going to highlight here is the statement, we affirm and avow that the very meanest translation of the Bible contains, nay, is the Word of God. The very meanest meaning, you know, the most ordinary, lowest quality or whatever. Although they did add a jab at their Catholic opponents because they said, the very worst one translated by men of our profession because we haven't seen any of theirs yet. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something healthy there. Mm -hmm. You know, the NIV is the word of God. The ESV is the word of God. Even the NLT is the word of God. Although I recognize. I do recommend you typically use something a little more precise in translation than the, than the NLT. <laughs> How about the message, Marlon? I would push that pretty close to the commentary line. Mm-hmm. It is certainly best used as a commentary. Again, it's one person, Eugene Peterson. And also, I think he was an insightful scholar, but my impression is that N.T. Wright's translation would be far closer to the translation end of the spectrum than the message. I think we can wrap it up here, Reagan. I'll kick it up to you. Thanks so much, Marlon. This has been really interesting. Yeah, indeed, this has been. I know I'm I'm learning a lot over here. Um, so thank you, thank you everyone for joining us for the conversation. Uh, lots to learn. It's obviously a very large topic that's very complex, but I feel we were able to at least scratch a little piece of the surface here. And I recommend you go and read both of his essays over on our website at anabaptistperspectives.org. And if you don't already, we do have an exclusive podcast over on Patreon um, as well. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash anabaptistperspectives. And that's also a significant way that this work is supported to allow us to keep producing content like this. So thanks so much again for listening, for your support, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.